So if, you've, if you're just joining us, we have been in the midst of a sermon series called The Thread, where we're going through each book of the Bible, all 66, and preaching one sermon out of each. Now, if you can count, we're in 2 Peter, which means there's only a few left. Um, I wanted to let you guys know what we're going to be doing for Advent this year. As we close, do you know what the last book of the Bible is? Revelation. Now, in the 16-year, almost 16-year history of our church, do you know how many sermon series I've done through Revelation? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> We're going to do a five-week series in Revelation as we close, kind of seeing the end of the story. And as we ponder the first coming of Jesus, we're going to be looking forward to the next. So if you didn't think you were going to get your Hallmark Christmas, we're going to get some freaky looking lambs and like bowls of wrath and dragons and all kinds of things like that. So you're welcome and Merry Christmas. (laughs) Now as we think about how Jesus came in humility uh, reaching out to us, when we think about his return, there will be no doubt. So, all right, let's Let's pray, and then we got a video that will introduce 2 Peter to you. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance that you've given me right now in this moment to preach. I pray, God, that your words would transcend mine. I pray that as we look at the Bible, that we would acknowledge it and see it, not just as words written by men, but as your word. And I pray, God, that we would treat it as such. And so we... The book of 2 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter sometime between 65 and 68 AD. Knowing that his life was coming to an end, Peter writes to the churches in Asia, imparting his final message of wisdom for faithful living. Peter begins with a reminder that through the person of Jesus, God has invited humanity to participate in his own divine love, giving access to the affection displayed within the Trinitarian God. For Peter, this compels a Christ follower to a lifelong commitment of obedience and growth, conforming their character into God's nature expressed through goodness, endurance, self-control, affection, and love. Peter calls the churches to not be deceived by the rotten philosophy of false teachers who twist the freedom found in Christ, giving the people license to sin openly and freely. They believe they are liberated, but in reality are captured, enslaved to the lust and greed from which they were set free in Christ. While waiting for God's promised restoration, Peter calls them to instead live righteously according to the truth of Scripture. Peter's second letter challenges us to thoroughly examine our lives and treat sin as seriously as God does. It is through Jesus that we are reclaimed from the powers of sin and set free to participate in God's perfect love. We can trust and know that God's revelation of himself is truthful, a lamp shining in the dark, which in turn commands our most devoted effort. What do you believe to be true about the Bible? Is it actually the revelation of God about himself and the determiner of what's true? Or is it just a book written over the course of about 1,500 years by a bunch of Jewish guys? Is it the true story of the world or is it just inspirational literature that's 
confusing sometimes, but sounds deep and spiritual. Is it the actual revelation of God, how we can know, then, then how can we know if it's not only given by God, but faithfully recorded and handed down so that what we read is true and a right reflection of what God has actually said? You ever wrestle with these questions? See, where you land on this will determine, in a lot of ways, the trajectory of your life. What is authoritative in your life and what is not. I was a history major, in part because I'm, by nature, just a little bit skeptical. And as God was calling me into ministry, like, I grew up in church, and, and I, I had all the, like, confessional doctrinal statements about this is the Bible, this is God's Word, but there was this maybe gnawing doubt in the back of my mind of, is it really true, though? Is every word of it actually true? Has it faithfully been preserved, or how do I know that I can trust it? You see, as God was calling me to be a preacher of the Bible, I don't want to waste my time. And I don't want to give authority to something that doesn't actually or shouldn't actually have authority in your life. But I became convinced that it's actually God's Word. Not just written by human authors, although it was, it was written by a divine author. And so in our time together this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible is, what the Bible's about, whether we can trust the Bible or not, and a brief bit on how we got the Bible that hopefully reassures you that when you open up this book, even translated into English, you can be pretty sure that this is God's word and revelation of himself to you. And because of that, it actually serves in an, as an authority outside of you, above you, determining what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false. And while that might feel restricting, it's actually freeing to not have to determine truth for ourselves. Because how do we know if we get it right? God tells us. So, these are the questions, among others, that Peter addresses in his final letter. Second Peter is a letter he wrote to the churches at the end of his life, as he knew the end was coming. And so, once you turn to chapter 1, we'll start in verse 12, and we'll go to the end of chapter 1 from first Pe- or Second Peter. Therefore, he writes, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. So what is the Bible? What is it about? Can we trust the Bible? And how did we get it to us today? Well, verse 12 begins with a recap of the first section of 2 Peter. Therefore, he says, I intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And so the question that should pop in our minds is, well, what qualities? All we have to do to answer that question is go back to the first 11 verses. See, 2 Peter is, is a letter written to a church that's dealing with false teachers who essentially say it doesn't matter how you live anymore if we're under God's grace. And so Peter begins his letter, as we would expect Peter to do, by, by hitting it head on. And he says it does matter how you live. In fact, the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can live the way that God has called us to live. And one of the reasons we know that the Spirit of God is in our life is it produces character qualities like faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly affection and steadfastness and love and godliness. And if you're wondering about those character qualities, those are in the first 11 verses. The good news is that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us the power so that we can actually live the way that he calls us to. That's good news. But then as he's reminding them of the character that should be present in them, his memory is jogged as he thinks about something else he wants to remind them of. His eyewitness testimony to seeing Jesus as he actually was. See, in verse 13, you hear it take a turn. And in these verses, you can just sense that he knows the end is near. And so these actually are the final words of the Apostle Peter. Interesting, isn't it? He writes, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. The Lord's made clear to me that my end is near. It's at hand. Now, we don't know if the Spirit showed up and said, now is the time, or if he's simply referring back to John 21, where Jesus promised him the way that he would die, or that he would die for his allegiance to Jesus. Most people would say that Peter is in Rome at this time, and tradition would tell us that he was crucified by Nero upside down shortly after this letter was written, bearing the scapegoat, the Christians being scapegoats for a fire that had happened that Nero wanted to blame on them. Now, if you knew the end was near for you, what would you do? What would you say? Having lived now, leading the church for about 30 to 35 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended back to heaven, what would you make certain of before you go? Peter writes down his eyewitness testimony. Because soon he's not going to be here anymore to speak it himself. And he wants to preserve his eyewitness testimony. What he saw, what he heard about Jesus, not just for the people that he's writing to, but for generations to come so that they might have a true voice of who Jesus is. And so what comes to mind when he thinks about his eyewitness testimony? What does he remember of absolute prominence? It's interesting, he recalls the transfiguration of Jesus. That brief moment in Jesus' life where God kind of pulls back his humble appearance and Peter is able to see Jesus as he truly is. The, the incarnate word of God full of glory and majesty. The moment when God spoke out of heaven and he heard the audible voice of God, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. He says, for we do not know, or we do not follow, verse 16, cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's this moment. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. When knowing that he is writing down words of testimony that will become words of scripture, he chooses to record the audible voice of God that he heard and the glory that he saw. If you're familiar with the gospel story, especially in Mark's gospel, this happened right after Peter saw, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, the Father revealed that to you, the Spirit revealed that to you. And then the the next story is, is going up on the mountain with Peter and John and James, and God pulls back the curtain, and he sees Jesus as he actually is in all of his glory and splendor. Now, when God speaks, when the voice of heaven booms out for others to hear, we have two recorded instances of God's voice being heard, and he says the same thing. The first one was at the baptism of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, after he had toiled for 30 years in in a carpenter's shop in Nazareth. God shows up and he says, you are my son, my beloved son, with, with whom I am well pleased. And now here on the Mount of Transfiguration, after Jesus' three years of of earthly ministry, of proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come into your midst, teaching faithfully what God is like, and demonstrating the power of this new kingdom, which would reverse all of the effects of the fall through casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming good news to the poor. At this moment, as he turns his face toward Jerusalem and his impending death and resurrection, at that moment again, the father shows up and says the exact same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then adds on, listen to him. Peter was there for both of these utterances. Now why is it when the audible voice of God is heard that he says the same thing twice? I mean, we know from the Gospels that Jesus would often withdraw to quiet places. He would spend time in prayer with his Father. This isn't the only time he heard from the Father. He was in constant communion with the Father, speaking, listening. But when God actually spoke so that others could hear it as well, it's the same thing. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why do you think God says that to Jesus? I think it's because these are the words that every son and every daughter needs to hear from their father whether they are divine or not. Son, I love you, and I am proud of you. You've done good work. Daughter, I love you, and I am proud of you. You've done good work. Here's the good news of the gospel. Because of what Jesus did for us, And because of how by faith we are now spiritually united to him so that everything he accomplished is now credited to us and all of our sin has been credited and paid for by him. The words that the father speaks to his son Jesus, he now speaks to us. Meaning he is saying to you, I love you and I am proud of you because of what Jesus has done. Now some of us, some people, spend your earthly life trying to hear words like that from your earthly father. I had a great dad. I never doubted those things for a second, but many of you didn't. In fact, you've never heard your father say, I love you and I'm proud of you. In so many ways, your life feels haunted by the lack of that affirmation and the lack of that love. But but the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, 
You have a heavenly father who has spoken those words over you in a more true way. Daughter, son, I am proud of you and I love you. And that sets us free then from having to hear from our dads, doesn't it? Because a greater voice has actually given us the decisive verdict. And the decisive verdict is in Christ for all of those who have trusted in him. This moment that Peter witnessed became a decisive moment in his life. So that when he faces the end and he wants to write down his testimony about Jesus, this is the story that is seared into his mind. In addition to the experience he had, we're told in the gospel accounts that Moses and Elijah were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now that's odd, isn't it? I mean, two guys that had died a long time ago, 1,500 years before and 1,000 years before. And they're there bearing their testimony to who Jesus is. Now, Moses and Elijah were with God and alive and were able to reveal themselves in that moment. But also, Moses and Elijah, in many ways, signified uh, the, the Old Testament. You see, Moses was the lawgiver. He wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Elijah was considered to be kind of the, the prophet that all of the prophets were judged by. And the shorthand for the Old Testament was to say the law and the prophets. Here now at the moment of Jesus' revelation and his glory, the law and the prophets are testifying that yes, indeed, this is true. This is who he is. Isn't that interesting? See, there's a fascinating metaphor that Peter uses here of light. He uses it in three ways. First, you have the shining light or glory of Jesus on that mountain that, that is so searing that Peter had to look away. Then you have a lamp shining in a dark place or a dark room at, at night that gives illumination. And then in the future, there's a day that will dawn where you will have the, the light of the morning star or the, the the, the, the day of dawn, like you will see like it's daytime instead of night. Let's explore these for just a second. Hang with me. First, the glory of Jesus was revealed in light at the transfiguration. We were able to see him as he actually is. It was a clear revelation that he is more than a man. He is God in a bod. <laughs> he is God walking among us. He is God who, though humble in appearance, is not actually like that, but revealed in glory. And then after the transfiguration, he goes to Jerusalem, and he's rejected and crucified and buried and raised. And then we read that we would do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. He is the lamp that came to us so that we now see the Old Testament scriptures differently. In Luke chapter 24, so the final chapter of Luke's gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples and he begins teaching them the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, and how they find their fulfillment in these days where he is crucified and raised, and now forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all in his name and that the Old Testament only makes sense, is what Jesus is saying. The law and the Psalms and the prophets only make sense in light of these days. He's giving us the interpretive key, so to speak, of how to understand the Hebrew Bible. 
It's why, why Christians and Jews have the same exact Old Testament that they look at, but it's like they're looking at different things. One group sees Jesus so clearly, the other has completely missed him, and it's like they're walking around in the dark. You're like, that sounds really arrogant to say. That's actually what the Bible is saying right here. B.B. Warfield, a, a Princeton theologian in the 1930s, described the Old Testament this way in light of Jesus' coming. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it that was only dimly or not at all perceived. So it's like stumbling through a dark room, like banging your like shins on the coffee table, like tripping over the couch, like you probably experienced this. And if you're a parent of small children, stepping on a Lego, okay, which is horrible. But then someone turns a lamp on and all of a sudden you see what's in the room far more clearly. The room hasn't changed, it's just someone turned the light on. That's what Jesus is. He's the lamp that has been turned on in a dark room so that we can now see clearly and understand the Old Testament scriptures. Do you see that? But there is a day coming when dawn arrives and we will no longer have to like rely on a dimly lit lamp because it'll be daytime and the sun will be shining and our faith will be sight and many of the things that are a mystery and fuzzy to us now will come into clear sight. That's what Peter is saying here. He's saying we have the Old Testament scriptures, but Jesus has now turned the light on. He's revealed his glory. And one day when he returns and our faith is sight, we will see more clearly like dawn. These are metaphors of God revealing himself. What is true and good and right that we see in the light. But then verses 20 and 21 say, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying about the scriptures here is that the primary author is not man, but behind mankind is God. It doesn't come from someone's own interpretation or their own will, but men spoke as they were carried along by God, revealing what the Spirit wanted us to know. The predictions made, the revelation that was revealed by the prophets, isn't simply an enlightened person's thoughts or interpretations about life. No, its origin is God himself. He is the author. He is the revealer. And, and those who reveal it or speak it, the prophets and the eyewitnesses that are now writing it down, do so because they are carried along by God's Spirit to record these things. What does that mean? Notice here that he's not only talking about the Old Testament scriptures, but what he feels compelled to write down as an eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. No revelation finds its origin in humanity, even though God uses human authors and their unique personalities and situations in which to communicate. But rather, it comes from God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 we couldn't pick this when we went through 2 Timothy, so I'll highlight it now. It says this about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is authored by God. It's breathed out by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it's helpful. It's profitable. It teaches us what is true and right. It corrects what is false, and it trains us to live godly lives that God desires of us. Peter acknowledges that the role of the prophets and the witnesses, even though they're human, is to carry and communicate what God wants us to know. 
So what is the Bible? It is God's word. The sufficient revelation of himself so that we know how to be saved and we know who he is. Now it doesn't contain everything that is truth, but what it contains is truth. So what do we believe about the Bible as a church? Glad you asked. Statement of faith, point number two. Let me just read it for you. These aren't dry, dusty doctrines, but actually things that really matter for how we live. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. See, as a church, we believe that the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, was ultimately written by God. True, they were composed of human authors, about 40 of them, over the course of about 1,500 years, each with their own unique writing style and personality, writing two specific historical situations, and yet behind it all, we see a unified author, God. No one else could have done it like this, revealing to us who he is, who we are, what went wrong, how he's going to make things right, and how we can respond to him correctly so that we too can be saved. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. You'll find nothing in that about how to perform open-heart surgery or how to change your spark plugs on your minivan. You need to rely on YouTube for that or a medical degree. Like, don't rely on YouTube for open-heart surgery, just to be clear. But the Bible does give us sufficient revelation of who he is and how we can be saved from our sin and our rebellion. See, what the Bible teaches is true. There are no errors in it. It will never teach us anything that is false. And even though it doesn't answer all of the questions that we have about life and God, it is complete enough so that we can know how to be saved and we can know who Jesus is. See, the Bible is not primarily a spiritual encyclopedia filled with random truths and life hacks, although it has truth and some pretty good life hacks in it. It's not primarily a book of laws and rules, although it has commandments and rules in it. The Bible is primarily an unfolding story of human history. It begins with God creating through the power of his word, creating mankind in his image, placing him in a garden, dwelling with God. Do you know how the Bible ends? It ends with humanity inside a garden, inside a city, once again dwelling with their God. And in the middle, a whole bunch of things go wrong. And a whole bunch of things go right. You see, the Bible is primarily a, a Semitic or an Eastern story that goes beginning, middle, new beginning. It begins in a garden with God. It ends in a garden with God where we dwell with him for all eternity. And in the middle is what went wrong and how he goes to extreme lengths to make things right. If that's what the Bible is, and that's how the Bible was written, it's also helpful for us to answer the question, how did we then get the Bible? How is it recognized and preserved for us so that we know that what it has is actually God's word? See, there are some who believe that the Bible might have been the revelation of God, but if, if, even if that's the case, how can we know which books and which letters and which prophecies should be included and considered authoritative, and which ones are fake and false 
and not to be considered authoritative. Many people would say, you know, it's the winners who write history. And so how do we know that the Bible we have isn't just a result of a certain faction or group winning and another losing? Now, as a history major, I can tell you most assuredly, history is not only written by the winners. We have lots of people who were, quote, losers who also responded and wrote things as they actually happened. Now, every spring around Easter, make no mistake, there will be some magazine that picks up on a new gospel that's been discovered, even though we've known about it for about 1,700 years and rejected as false of his people, and how actually Judas often thinks that we've known about for 1,700 years, 1,600 years, but the church is rejected as being false and, and not truthful the entire time. So how do we know that the books of the Bible, the letters, the gospels that were written, are true? The, the field of study is called canonization, the recognizing of the author, authoritative word of God. And, and here's the key phrase if you want to understand how we got the Bible put together. The authoritative word of God was recognized, it was not chosen. Those familiar with God's voice and the ministry of Jesus recognized his voice authority. Was it written by an apostle or someone who was close to an apostle so that the account is actually an eyewitness testimony? Is, is the doctrine orthodox? Was it written, um, did it fit with the rest of the New Testament teaching? And if you've seen some of the false gospels, it's very clear that they do not. It's, it's not the same author. Um, was it readily accepted uh, by the church of their day? Uh, third, was it broadly or widely distributed? Not just in one region, but was it spread throughout where all of the people of God benefited from it? And fourth, was it used by the Holy Spirit to awaken faith in people? Now, you might think this is a dry, dusty field of study, but for the people who were actually living in these days, it mattered, didn't it? Because they were about to die. There was a lot of heat that was associated with claiming the name of Jesus Christ. And they wanted to know whether, whether or not what they believed was actually true and whether it was worth dying for. In addition to that, which books of the, which letters and, and writings should we preserve and which ones don't we need to? Which ones do we need to stand on and which don't we? And as early as 170 AD, so about 150 years or so after Jesus lived and died and rose again, uh, there was the first kind of gathering of, of the New Testament. It was called the Muratorian Canon. Okay? Class? Sit? Class? You're like, uh, you lost me, Kyle. Just hang with me a little bit. I, want, I think this is important because I want you to be able to trust the Bible that you read. And in the Muratorian Canon, 21 out of the 27 books of the New Testament were already gathered and, and chosen and said, these are the ones that are true. And, and not only did they have a list of those that they found authoritative, but they also had a list of ones that should be rejected and not seen as scripture or authoritative. Usually it was because they were written by someone uh, and, and claimed by another person. So someone would say, I'm going to write the Gospel of Peter, because if Peter wrote it, it's going to have a lot more legs than if I wrote it, right? Like a ghostwriter. Those were often rejected, and they often had abhorrent or heretical teachings in them. The only New Testament books that were missing at 170 AD were Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and 2nd and 3rd John. All the rest had been gathered. They were still being weighed and considered. And it was better in the New Testament church to be cautious than hasty when speaking about God's word. Over the next 100 or 200 years, it became officially recognized and the books that we have, the 27 books of the Bible, New Testament, were recorded in the, very early on. Now, I could nerd out on this all day. 
I can see by the glazed over look on some of your eyes that that's not most of you. Um, but let me just say, if you're interested in more of this, um, the next Rock Hill Institute class, really the topic is how did we get the Bible? How is all of these things? So if you want a deeper dive on that, that's going to start in January. I would just commend that to you. Now, the other objection that I often get about the New Testament is how do we know that a bunch of errors didn't creep in when it was being copied or when it was being translated? Isn't it some, like, religious game of telephone that maybe happened? So, sure, the original writings were, were authoritative, but we know how the telephone game goes. The more that you pass it on to somebody else, the sillier it gets, the further from the truth it gets. Now, the short answer to that is absolutely not, in part because we have so many copies and they're so closely dated to when they were actually written. Most of them match up to about 99%, and the disparities that exist between them, when you see them overlapping one another, are easily reconciled to say, this is what happened, and maybe this is how an error crept in. In fact, there's an entire form of study called textual criticism, and we can be pretty certain that 99.8% that of the Greek New Testament that everybody has and translates off is the actual original, and the 0.2% that is a discrepancy, no major doctrine is threatened in any way. Now, if you were to put the Bible up against other books in ancient uh, literature or history and see how it stacks up, it absolutely blows them out of the water. Let me just give you a couple examples. There's a guy by the name of Tacitus, uh, a Roman historian who wrote about 100 AD, who wrote a history called the Annals. And we have 33 copies of that, and the oldest copy that we have surviving, the manuscript, is dated to 850 AD. So there's a discrepancy of about 750 years between the first copy and when he wrote it, and most ancient historians would say, yeah, he wrote it, Tacitus wrote it, and we're pretty certain that that's what it is. Or Plato, you've heard of him, he was a philosopher that wrote around 400 B.C. One of his writings, called Terologies, has 210 copies of it. It was written in 480 B.C., and the earliest manuscript that has survived is actually from 895 A.D. And so for the math people around, that's about 1,300 years, okay? I know you run out of fingers really quick, but hang with me. And most people generally accept that Plato wrote these things, and we can be somewhat certain that this is what he wrote. Uh, Caesar wrote something in 100 uh, B.C. that we have 250 copies of. It's called the Gaelic Wars. The oldest manuscript is dated to about 800 A.D., so again, about 900 years between when it was written and the earliest manuscript that we have. Probably the most, uh, the, the widest distributed document that we have from antiquity that's not the Bible is, is the, the Iliad, something that Homer wrote about the Trojan War. Most people think that he wrote it around 800 B.C., well, the earliest surviving manuscript that we have of that is from 400 B.C. So there's still about a 400-year uh, gap in, in that, but we have like 1,757 different manuscripts or copies of the Iliad. Now, how does the New Testament stack up against these generally received and acceptable historical documents? Well, there's about 23,769 manuscripts that we have of the, ancient, or of the New Testament. It was written between 50 and about 100 A.D., and the earliest accepted manuscript that everybody kind of universally affirms and dates that we have is 130 A.D. You do the math, it's within 50 years, okay? And the number of manuscripts and texts that we have is so overwhelmingly more than any other ancient document that we can be reasonably certain, almost certain, that it's exactly what was 
written. Now, I won't even get started on the Old Testament other than to say when the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, that those aren't actually Christian documents. Those are Jewish documents. We have a copy of every book of the Old Testament other than Esther dating to 100 years before the time of Jesus. Meaning that none of the Old Testament was fabricated or, or fake to make it seem like Jesus actually was the guy more than he actually was. We have copies of it before he actually lived. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. And the tedious ways in which they copied things and preserved things, you, you, could, you could spend a long time on that. But here's the thing. Can we trust the Bible? Yes. On top of all the manuscripts and dates, let me just give you a few other reasons. First, the Bible was written by eyewitnesses of the events. Peter is testifying here. Now, that's significant because the timing is so close to when it actually happened. That means that it is far too soon for legends to creep in. Why? Because if they were telling things that were false about Jesus, the eyewitnesses would have been like, no way, that's not how it happened. There wasn't 5,000 people that he fed, it was 50. It's a little bit of a discrepancy, right? But there wasn't. Not only that, but the way in which you speak often dates you. Like if I were to say, this, this, this field of study is really rad, you'd be like, you grew up in the 80s and 90s and should probably go back there, right? In the same way, the way in which the New Testament was written actually dates it to the time of the eyewitnesses. Not only that, but the four probably most universally accepted documents of Paul, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians, almost everybody, like Christians and not, accept them as the writings of the Apostle Paul. They're the earliest manuscripts that we have, and they make the biggest claims about Jesus and the resurrection of any of the other ones. And so the timing, there's just not enough time for legends to creep in. In addition to that, the, 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 the gospel accounts are filled with embarrassing stories of people who had actually written them. Like, how many times do the disciples of Jesus look like buffoons as they're arguing with each other about who's the greatest or as they're stepping out and putting their foot in their mouth, like Peter, among whom was the chief, right? Now, if you were writing the account, and you, wouldn't there be a small temptation to take out the parts in which you looked like an idiot? I mean, we do this when we tell stories, right? We, like, maybe conveniently leave out certain details, but they didn't. Why? I think a couple reasons. One is they wanted to tell the stories as they actually happened. And two, they understood the gospel and their identity in Jesus, so they were free to look like buffoons because that's not where their identity lied. In addition to that, if you were to fabricate the resurrection story, there is no way that you would have women discovering the empty tomb. Not because I'm misogynistic or sexist, but because they were back then. In fact, women were not considered a valid testimony in a court of law. And so there would have been no way that you would ever fabricate the story that way, unless, of course, you felt honor-bound to tell it as it actually happened. Because it did happen that way. And a group of women discovered the most cataclysmic event in human history, the empty tomb, and bore witness to it. Not only that, but the level of detail contained in the Gospels was unique and a completely new type of literature. It read like an eyewitness account. Stories of the numbers of fish that were there or some random naked guy running through. That, that's what you would tell if you were like uh, in church. Some naked guy runs through. You're like, how did church go today? Well, I, it was weird. Let me tell you, Pastor Kyle preached this sermon, but then this naked dude ran through, right? That happens in Mark chapter 15, I think. The, the Gospels read like eyewitness accounts because the eyewitnesses were actually accounting for what they saw. A, a similar field of like literature, like if you're like, well, we have historical fiction. 
Yeah, but historical fiction wasn't a genre for 1,700 years after. It was utterly unique. It was eyewitness testimony. Finally, the cost of the message was high for those who wrote it and those who adhered to it. It cost them their lives. Every one of the disciples except John was killed for their allegiance to Jesus and their testimony about him. John got to finish his days in exile on the island of Patmos. James, who wasn't a believer in Jesus, he was a half-brother of Jesus, became a believer afterwards. Now, ask yourself, what would have to happen for you to worship one of your siblings as God? (laughs) I'm just saying. You probably had to see him die and rise again. I mean... He probably had some issues of like, you want to talk about an older brother's shadow that's hard to live in, right? You want to talk about a, a brother that you could never blame anything on because Mary would be like, yeah, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't do that. <laughs> James becomes a believer and he writes about it and he dies for his allegiance to worshiping his brother as God. I tell you all of these things not so that you might think I'm smart, I'm really not, but that you might trust the Bible as God's word, realizing that it is true and that we can actually know what God is like. So what is the Bible? The Bible is the word of God. What is it about? It's about Jesus and what he has done so that we might be saved. How did we get the Bible? We got it through God inspiring the prophets and the eyewitnesses to write his word, revealing who he is and how one can be saved, that it was painstakingly preserved and handed down so that we can be certain that what we read is actually the words of God. And so can we trust the Bible? Yes, we can. Now let me ask you one question to close. If you believe that, why don't you read it? I bet a lot of you could tell me the books that you've read cover to cover. Novels, stories, life hack books. And yet we say all of these astounding things about this book, and yet I find most American Christians let it just collect dust on their shelves. Yeah, that's God's word. Why don't you read it? Like, why don't you study it? Why don't you memorize it? Why don't you speak it to one another? Why don't you spend your time listening to other people teach about it? If God actually has revealed himself through this book and you want to know about God, then you should pick it up. There's so many different ways that you can understand and consume the Bible. Like, you can download a free app and and have someone read it to you as you drive on on your commute to work. As you, as you do your run, as you mow your lawn, you can listen to it over and over again and it has a way of shaping you. Now, the majority of this message has been spent answering the question, is this true? And I think the resounding answer to that is, yes, it is. It is. And if you don't believe me, do a little bit of your own research and you will find that most people who set out to disprove the Bible often become believers in doing so. I dare you. But you know what keeps most of us from Jesus? It's not whether or not we believe it to be true. A lot of times it's, we wonder, is it good? Is it good? See, what keeps most people from 
Jesus and, and the good news of the gospel is not that it is implausible, but that they don't want to actually acknowledge God. It's not an intellectual objection as much as it is a volitional one. They don't want it to be true because you want to worship and serve something else. Your primary objection, if you're honest, with Christianity is usually not an intellectual one. It's a volitional one. And so I might be able to answer the question backwards and forward, up and down, is the Bible true? And the answer is yes. But if you haven't determined in your mind whether or not what it reveals to us about God is actually good, you won't have the eyes to see. So the good news of the gospel is this, the plan in which God has revealed to reconcile humanity with himself is this, even though we rebelled against our creator and deserved nothing but his judgment, he sent his son into the world to live for us, to lay down the righteous life that was required of us, but none of us attained it other than him, and to die for us, to offer himself as a substitute, a sacrifice, so that when he hung there on that Roman cross, he was bearing the penalty, not for his own sin, he had none, but for your sin and for my sin. That by belief in him, by faith and trust in him, we might be saved. And what I mean by that is that his life is credited to me by faith. All that he accomplished is now mine in him. And my life and my record is transferred onto him and dealt with in one decisive act. That the way in which I am saved is not by moral improvement or by even memorizing this thing, but by rather recognizing and believing and trusting that what Jesus has done is sufficient and putting my faith in him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I would not have been that gracious of a God. And yet his mercy is amazing. He is so good to take rebellious image bearers like us and to offer us his son that if we but acknowledge him, we might be reconciled and forgiven, saved, and welcomed into the family of God. So the Bible is not just true. It's also good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Would you awaken faith in all of us now? God, even for the person who came thinking that the Bible was just a random book filled with tons of errors and generally dismissed by intellectuals, I pray that your spirit would awaken faith in them right now, as I, even as I pray that we would see Jesus as he truly is and worship him and trust in him. God, for those of us who already acknowledge your word and already acknowledge Jesus the Savior, would you cause us to pick up your word and to get to know you better? Would you move and work in your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite